Tom, really great to meet you, man. Thanks so much for taking some time to come on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation, Ethan. Yeah, well, I'm delighted to have you. And what you're working on is a very unique and probably unfortunately necessary project that, that we need now. So before we kind of dive into it, I always love to start the podcast with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Yeah, um, it's. A, I'll try to keep it brief. I don't think I'm the world's most interesting person, but um, I accidentally fell into the into the climate space. I was a Wall Street investment banker for about 15 years. Got my MBA in finance. Went back to investment banking, um, and then I was a vice president in banking in, in Europe, and really decided to make the jump over to the social sector. And I think for a lot of people, I was in my late 30s at the time. I joined the Clinton Health Access Initiative. And I worked with them in Latin America. I worked with them in Zambia. I was a country director in Africa. I was a country director in Latin America and really saw the early stages of climate devastation. Saw, saw you know, women and children kind of scavenging for water in the morning, not being able to uh, get to school in the morning, access the, 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 you know, access to health was a big issue. And I think for a lot of people that are working abroad and are seeing the early stages of climate devastation, we kind of felt like we were putting a Band-Aid on the problem rather than a long-term solution. And just kind of just slowly compounded, learn, learning more and more about the climate. I moved over to climate adaptation and, and helped co-fund and launch a, uh, a uh, asset management firm called Water Equity. And that was solely focused on, on ending the water and sanitation crisis. But again, I was interested in solutions. And so finally ran into some people here in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley that had a science-based solution that could slow down the pace of climate change. And so I've been in this space overall for about eight to 10 years, um, but I've moved. Like when you look at the, the climate action agenda, kind of started off in climate adaptation, worked a little bit in decarbonization, and now I'm in this, this, uh, these science-based solutions. Really cool. So you might not find the, your background that interesting, but I, I certainly do. I'm wondering, number one, what led you to investment banking to begin with? And then most particularly, what kind of instigated the jump into climate work? Yeah, I grew up in a small town and it's called Niles, Michigan, right? I think it has about 8,000 people. <laughs> it's uh, right in the Michiana where Michigan and Indiana combine. And I always had, I always had, because of my faith and just the way I grew up, I really wanted to serve. I really wanted to serve, right? And I remember when I graduated from the University of Michigan, I, I applied to and I almost joined the Peace Corps. But uh, all the mentors in my life told me, you know, I graduated in a fabulous economy, which isn't necessarily, I'm a generation Xer, it's a huge difference, right? Um, and there were a lot of opportunities in investment banking and consulting and the West Coast and the East Coast. And so I decided to start off my career in Wall Street in New York City. And the mentors that I had told me, go learn, grow your net worth, you get some highly transferable skills and make the jump to the social sector later in life. So that's the path I chose. It's not the path that everybody chooses. Like, I do think there's some wisdom that when you know what you want to do in your life, the best time to start is right away. Like, don't pause it. I, I think that I, I benefited. It was a good choice for me. But I spent a long time in the private sector before I moved over to climate change. And now I might go back to the private sector because the climate action response is now getting commercialized. Right. Right. Um, you know, this is we have to decarbonize the planet's economies. and We got to buy the planet more time. So now we're seeing people in suits show up and and rush in. And that's a sign of our success. So I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people like me that are currently working for nonprofits or government agencies are back in the private sector like five, 10 years from now. 
It is interesting. I I wouldn't be surprised either. I think that's so cool that you kind of had this vision from the beginning. But I think that is the more like kind of traditional route to to build a really firm foundation for yourself with plans to eventually go off and and do something that is more deeply meaningful. Um, I'm I'm more of like the very high risk tolerance. I'm just going to go go right into it right now. But I think that that makes a lot of sense. And that's really interesting that that's the advice that you got and you took it. And and here you are now as the CEO of a really unique organization. So let's kind of go ahead. I was going to say, but I think it's also personality driven. Like you seem to be more like a, in a good way, you seem more like a raging entrepreneur, right? I'm a, I'm a raging and, entrepreneur. <laughs> and I usually attached myself to somebody like you and scale their work. Right. So oh, I need got you, man. more, my risk tolerance has increased with age. Maybe that's the opposite, you know, yeah. it's usually inversely correlated with age, but I've gone in the opposite direction. Oh, I don't have a Steve Wozniak, man. It's just me out here doing the, <laughs> use, trying to hone in the crazy energy and create the systems myself. Um, like, yeah, it would be great to have a business partner. That's not, that's not how things have shaken out. My, um, my, one of my best friends from college, he works for Nomura in London. So he's an investment banker. And I always yeah. say like, it would have been great. I actually named the company and people don't know. Um, Climate Change Realty is a DBA. My company is actually called Thomas Meyer Realtors, which is named after me and him because when I first started my my first business was a, a a real estate investment company in the UK, and I was going to give yeah. half of my money. I've never said this on the podcast. I was going to yeah. give half of my money to him, and he was going to sign the papers because he was actually a British citizen. So that idea of giving half away kind of actually came to my friend, and it would have been a great partnership because I'm crazy ideas, and he's like all like suit classic system business kind of thing. This is just a funny thing to throw in. But so what you're working on right now is is super important work. So I kind of just want to give a broad overview of like, so it's it's the Arctic, um, Arctic ice project. Can we kind of give it a, like, what is the Arctic and how, like, kind of why do we have these giant blocks of ice at the poles? Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the one sentence description is we're trying to slow down the pace of climate change by restoring ice to the Arctic. So, and so I think part of understanding all of these climate interventions or these science-based solutions is you have to understand first climate change, right? right? Then you have to understand why the Arctic matters, right? And then you get into our solution and how we, we hope to solve it. Um, but our solution and our, we've, we've basically, uh, we have a, a technical approach, a very novel materials approach that we call surface albedo modification. And our goal over the next five years is we're a scientific research organization. We built out an innovation network with uh, some of the leading, most prestigious climate scientists in the world. And we need to build up the body of research over the next five years so that the expert reviewers of the IPCC, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, can put us in one of their assessment pathways. And that's where the funding comes in. So we're basic fundamental research. We're not, you know, just engineering. Um, but, um, you know, why does the Arctic matter? The Arctic matters because, you know, I think that's, you know, it can be overwhelming, all these solutions to a certain extent, right? Um, but the Arctic matters because it's our it's been our planetary heat shield for millennia, right? And it's not, I think it's not that complicated, right? When the sun shines down on the earth, um, the Arctic ice reflects it back into outer space, right? So 80% of the sunlight that shines down on the earth 
when it hits the Arctic and the old multi-layer ice, it reflects back into outer space. Now, the problem is that 95% of that ice is gone and Arctic ice is disappearing at a double digit rate annually now, maybe 12%, right? Once the Arctic goes away, we run into this pace where we, we have to worry about runaway climate change because instead of, instead of reflecting 80% of a, that radiation back into space, the Earth's planet is going to absorb it, right? Um, because open seawater only reflects 5%. And so you're, you're talking about a huge amount of radiative heating that's going to be hitting our planet. And we only have, I know people say this is the last decisive decade, but this is the last decisive decade. I mean, the scientific consensus is somewhere between 2040 and 2050, we're going to have an ice-free Arctic summer, which is considered to be a global tipping point. Now, maybe some people say it'll be as early as 2030, um, but there is a consensus that it's, that it's coming. And um, a lot of scary statistics that I could scare you with, but the good news is we do have solutions in our hands. And we just need to we just need to prove the safety and validity of those solutions, make sure they're effective, and we need to scale them. Right. Yeah. Ninety five percent of Arctic ice has disappeared. The older ice, which is the most important ice. You have young ice, you know, that might exist, um, and then it melts during the summer and it comes back. And then you have multi year ice, which is old ice. Yeah, over ninety percent of that's gone. Um, pretty darn sure it's over ninety five percent now. And so you can actually see pictures with the Arctic shrinking and the Arctic is to a certain extent, people, some parties are more interested in militarizing it than they are with saving it. Right. Militarizing it in the sense of using it as a way to get people to do things or like actually like claiming the land as like a conquest. A little bit of both. I mean, Arctic <laughs> is not like, it's not like Antarctica, you know, there's land underneath it and a lot of people live there. Right. And Russia, you have a lot of Arctic nations. You know, the United States is an Arctic nation. We have Alaska. So is Russia. Uh, China is, is trying to consider itself kind of an Arctic, like uh, soft circle Arctic nation. So, yeah, there's a lot of business interests. Um, it's a great geopolitical strategic value. Um, and you see, you see uh, world powers like Russia and the United States drafting plans and building icebreaker ships and moving into the Arctic. Now we have commercial ships can, you know, sail through the Arctic. You know, they couldn't do that in the past because that so much of the Arctic ice has, has melted. So there's uh, a lot of humanity is, is doing a, a lot of work there, right? So all of those interests sometimes run contrary to restoring the Arctic to what, what it once was because, because of climate change. Okay. Thank you for bringing that up because I was all, all mixed up. It's, it is a diff the Arctic and the Antarctic are different. So that's, yeah. a, I think that's a really important distinction to throw out there. Yeah. And that good news and bad news, the Northwest passage is, is thinking that, that we're going to have that now, which is not good because it means all the ice is melted. So pretty, yeah. pretty problematic. No, I was going to say you hit it. You hit the nail on the head. That's right. So do you, why is, does the Arctic warm faster than other places on earth? And why is it more exacerbated by like climate change? You know, whenever you look at the planet, we're discovering all these feedback loops, you know, um, they call them positive feedback loops, but they're usually negative feedback loops because they're bad news, right? <laughs> and the Arctic is warming at two to three times faster than the rest of the planet. You're absolutely right. And the reason is, is just what I described before is that we have these greenhouse gases going up. Greenhouse gases are trapping heat. That heat makes the ice melt. When the ice melts, what's underneath it? Maybe land, maybe ocean. 
and that absorbs even more heat, which causes more ice to melt, which which causes that radiative, you know, that sunlight to hit more land and ocean. And so it just keeps on getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and so that loop we see occurring in the Arctic, and that's that's it's called the Arctic amplification effect. Mm -hmm. It's just amplifying itself. And what effect does losing ice have on the biosphere or living things around the planet? Uh, it's going to disrupt everything. It's it's the same, you know, for even here in California, I'm in San Francisco. But, um, you know, what happens when we get above two degrees Celsius? And I think that the consensus view with peak practitioners now is that we're at two, per, you know, two degrees Celsius of warming. We've already passed 1.5 degrees Celsius. We're jumping into a hole without knowing how deep it is. You know, um, the Arctic is both a consequence and a driver of, of global, of, of, you know, climate change, right? And so one is that, yeah, it's, it's a consequence. It's life as we know it in the Arctic is going to disappear, right? Um, that's going to have a huge effect on species and wildlife and actually the Intuit tribes, actual people that live there. But what is it going to do to the global thermostat? You know, what is the, the disappearance of the Arctic due to people that live here in North America? And in other parts of the world. I think that's the Arctic Ice Project, the people that are funding us that are involved in here, we're not, I, I'd say some people come because they're involved. They, you know, Arctic is this ecosystem, this biome that we have to kind of maintain, but it's also a driver of climate change. It matters to all of us. So you mentioned this term that brings me back to eighth grade science class, maybe, which is yeah which is albedo. So when I hear albedo, I think of reflectivity. Is, is, is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. I, it's a, it's, yeah. I mean, it's a fancy word that, that refers to, to the reflectivity of a surface. So from a technical perspective, our organizational mission is to increase the Earth's planetary albedo. Yeah. Because the Earth, the planet, has an albedo of maybe 15%. So sunlight shines down upon this beautiful planet 15% might be reflected back. Now, um, ice reflects 80%, open water reflects 5%, so it differs. But what we're seeing is like with the, with the Arctic gone, with the cryosphere disappearing, and cryosphere is the ice freeze of frozen parts of the world. When that goes away, we lose our shield and it just heats up faster and faster. And so I'm sure, you know, when you go, when you travel through Spain and you see people painting their, their the tops of their roofs white, that's basically localized albedo modification, mm -hmm. right? They're basically painting their roofs so that the house doesn't get hotter, so it reflects more sunlight back. Now, it's localized. It's not going to change the world's, the global thermostat. What we're trying to do is actually slow down the pace of global warming. So it's a, it's a much more of a massive kind of effort, right? Yeah, well, you're trying to buff up the, the world's biggest shield against heat. And when it reflects this heat off, it... it it slows down this positive feedback loop that we're discussing, which which is this um, compounding effect of continuing warming, which leads to more warming, which is what most scientists are afraid of. So, can you tell me how what your pro what your company is doing um, to propagate this mission? What is your methodology for bu bus bolstering up this shield? Yeah. Well, we our approach it's a novel materials approach. So, if you hold it in your hand. Um, if you held it in your hand, it would basically look like it would basically look like white sand. Okay, so it's a materials approach in that when you take this like white sand, these hollow glass microspheres that are made of silica, and you throw them over, disperse them over target areas of the Arctic. You don't have to, you know, you can't carpet the entire Arctic Ocean. 
But if you but you, if you target specific areas of the Arctic and you take advantage of the ocean currents, um, those hollow glass microspheres will improve the reflectivity or the albedo of the ice. And it'll change it from 15%, it'll change it to 30% to 80%, and it'll allow the Arctic ice to either not melt or regrow. And so that's what we're trying to improve. With this materials approach of throwing it out on the Arctic, will it cause Arctic ice to regrow? And so how are we doing that is that, you know, it's science. So we have a, um, we have a five-year technical plan and we're doing climate modeling at, you know, NASA Ames Research Facility down here in Mountain View. We're doing, we're doing, uh, um, simula- we're doing testing in ponds under Arctic simulated conditions in Norway and Trondheim, Norway with our research partners. And we have seen that it works here in, in San Francisco. We've done some work in Sierra Nevada, but we now got to convince a global body of scientists, right? You know, it, you know, if we actually wanted to deploy any of these types of climate intervention solutions, it could cost $3 billion. It could cost $4 billion. Right. Uh, a small organization in Redwood City, California can't do that. It's going to be like a nation state or, or, or maybe a you know, consortium of nation states that deploy this solution. Global coalition. And so we have to convince that global body of scientists. And so we really look, you know, the, the gold standards in that area are like the National Academy of Sciences, the IPCC, getting into their reports and having them recommend us as a potential solution and building up that body of peer reviewed research. That's the North. Those are the North star metrics, right? Um, and probably the most important components of that are we do climate modeling, which sounds very boring, but it's incredibly exciting. We use supercomputers down here, you know, in Silicon Valley, and we have that test the effect. I'm speaking kind of broadly, but basically climate modeling tests the effectiveness of whether a, a solution works. Right. right. And those models will get critiqued by people at Harvard or people at Cambridge. And obviously scientific research is a dialogue, but you have to get, you have to get published in peer reviewed, prestigious peer reviewed publications because the, you know, all of these academies, they only look at peer reviewed research. Like we could do some work in our basement, you know, or in our garage, but we're not a Silicon Valley tech company, like ordering pizza. We're, 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 we're actually a company that's trying to like, prove something that's pretty dangerous if it goes wrong, mm-hmm. which is which is toying around with the global thermostat. So so we really have to it's really those channels that we have to get our work done with. We're probably if we were fully funded, people ask this a lot, which is how long does it, will it take you to deploy? I mean, we're five to seven years away from finishing our research. So we would require approximately 40 to 50 million dollars in additional funding in probably five years to get it done before it could be deployed by anyone. I mean, there's still a lot of testing that uh, that needs to be done. And when you look at the other technologies that are of our type, whether they be marine cloud brightening or, or um, stratospheric aerosols, we obviously think we're the safest approach and the best approach, but all of those technologies are still in that fundamental research stage as well. I got to look into the two things that you just mentioned. I've never heard of the aerosol spraying stuff and then reflecting heat back. Is that what you were just talking about? Yeah. Like David Keith's team at the Harvard Solar Engineering Program um, are doing, that's kind of one of their, their approaches um, that they've done uh, a lot of research on. And I think it's the most well-known approach in terms of science-based solutions, just because it's been, there's a great, a bigger body of research around, but I believe it's been around for over 30, 40 years maybe kind of armchair philosophy for a mm-hmm. lot of that time. But as 
you know, as as climate as the climate's gotten worse, a lot of these theories like that people used to have that seemed uh, like science fiction are now actually being studied at universities, you know, um, and um, the the potential deployment of them is increasingly becoming like something that could actually happen. Right. Because yeah. our personal technology, we're not the core solution. Like the core solution is to stop polluting. Right. Right. Our solution is like a climate hedge. It buys us more time to stop polluting. Climate adaptation helps people adapt to the crisis, but it doesn't stop polluting. So um, I think that in terms of a comprehensive like climate action agenda, we have to invest in science-based solutions, right? Um, and we're one of them sweet. We have to use every tool in the toolbox, but we can't lose sight of the decarbonization, you know, pathways that have to happen. Yeah, there's like you said, we have to use a suite, and we got we got to use them all. That's why it's amazing to talk to people like you. Who yeah. is um who's funding this research? What is like kind of pushing the project along at the moment? It's all private donors, isn't that isn't that terrible? Isn't it terrible that the federal government isn't funding this stuff yet? I mean, uh, we have recommendations from the National Academy of Science that have called out for the United States government to fund it. We've we have other bodies and think tanks that that say the same. But so much of climate tech is not funded by the federal government and it, it's not quite ready to be commercialized. And so you have this, um, you could call it a technological death valley, right? Where we need to get these solutions done in the next five to 10 years. But if we just let it rely upon philanthropy, it's gonna take 30 years to get it done. And by then a lot of these precious ecosystems are gonna be gone. So we've all, I, I will say, if I, when we started the Arctic Ice Project two years ago, I thought federal funding was around the corner, right? Joe Biden got elected. I thought things were turning around. Uh, we actually had that in proposals. We will get there. I'm sure that the government, but, you know, it's a, it's a political problem. I mean, climate change is um, a human problem. Like, we know what's causing it. We know how to stop it. But it is, it is, is how does humanity govern itself type of issue? And whether or not we can get those bills passed to fund these initiatives or to decarbonize in time, you know, the social sciences are as big a component of this solution as, you know, the hard sciences. Yeah, I, I think at this point, it's probably a bigger part of the solution because we do, like you said, we just need to decarbonize. And it's not like yeah. we don't have technology that um, can give us the same standard of living that we have with uh solar panels and winds come to example we've beat that topic to death i'm sure in every single climate discussion either you of us either of us has ever had let's your proposal is deploying this silica um what is it part what do you call it particle or silica sand in in the arctic how how is this stuff created or is it captured is it plentiful would we have enough and then how do you make it or do you just capture it is it a natural thing well, what is it what is silica? Yeah, well, um, it's a great question. I mean, um, and I think it's what makes our approach so safe and effective because it's potentially reversible and we're utilizing a materials approach that you can touch and basically is ubiquitous in nature, nature, right? So silica is in, not, it's the main const constituent of 95% of rocks. Oh, wow. I think over over 60% of the Earth's crust is silica. It's pretty it's, common. Uh, it's abundant. It's uh, It breaks down naturally. 
Um, it doesn't attract oil-based pollutants. So you can hold it in your hand. You can drink it with your cup of coffee. We used to have somebody that used to do that for a gag. So it's not, you know, of course, safety is our first motto. And we're doing a huge amount of ecotoxicology testing because safety and effectiveness go hand in hand for any of these climate interventions. Um, but it's not, uh, yeah, it's just, I, I could go in the other room and show you, but it, it just literally looks like white sand. Um, I think actually, um, yeah, sand, the, the main, major computer of sand is just silica. So if you're on sand in the beach, so it's a very ubiquitous kind of uh, materials-based approach. It will have to be manufactured, right? And part of our job is choosing the right materials approach, right? Choosing the right material. So there, there are different organ, there are different private sector corporations that make hollow glass microspheres. And right now we have a research partnership with Syntef and Trondheim, Trondheim Nori. They're a large, prestigious, 2000 person uh, independent laboratory. And they're taking seven, I think it's five or seven different types of hollow glass microspheres from different types of manufacturers. And in Arctic simulated conditions, conditions they're testing them. They're running them down flumes. They're seeing if they adhere to different services. They're doing, they're freezing them and then unfreezing them. They're shaking them up. And, and part of that is, is trying to understand before we test in the field, um, making sure that these are safe for the environment, right? And so all of that testing will, will be, we have a, a long, you know, we have a lot of work to do there. Um, but, the, but the approach to me and to, to obviously our funders and these people we speak to is not as invasive as shooting aerosols, you know, up into the stratosphere. It's not as fantastic as space mirrors, right? Or maybe right. some of the other solutions that you hear, because when you look at uh, science-based solutions that slow down pace of climate change or climate interventions, they go all the way from planting trees to, you know, space mirrors. And so it's, there's a huge <laughs> spectrum of like what's going on, you know? <laughs> yeah. Speaking of spectrum, um, it's really interesting to talk to you because I've your your angle is is very unique. It's actually attacking the 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 problem of global warming rather than the problem of carbon in the atmosphere. Are you familiar with uh, mineralization for carbon removal? Yeah. So carbon sequestration. Yeah. Yeah. So their 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 that idea is to take olivine or another mineral that can draw down carbon and then sequester it, as you had said. So and that seems relatively safe to me to take a rock. I mean, I don't know if this is kind of being too simplistic, but both of these is taking a rock and laying it down somewhere to help with climate change. They're talking. Yep. They're, they're sequestering with the rock. Your 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 rock dust or sand is actually reflecting heat back up into the atmosphere to um, kind of bolster up this shield and put the climate back into a regulated state rather than getting at the carbon issue. You're getting at the, the climate is getting irregulated. We need to fix that. And it's cool to have both, both of those. It, it hits the, both of the problem in a different way though, you know? Yeah. I mean, and I'm glad that you understand that. That's not like obvious to everybody. Right. But what the technologies that you're talking about are part of the cleanup crew. Right. Right. They're not like people forget or that not only do we have to stop polluting, but we've been polluting for a very long time. And those greenhouse gases aren't going anywhere. I don't know if it's a hundred years or a thousand years, but they're gonna stay and they're gonna drive, you know, increased temperatures. And so the technologies that you're talking about is like step one, stop polluting, sounds simple, but we gotta do that. And then step two is the greatest cleanup that humanity has ever faced, which is all these suite of technologies 
how do we capture carbon? How do we sequester it? And there's a lot of solutions for that, but that's part of the solution as well. And then there's us, right? Which is basically slowing down the pace of climate change so that those other approaches have more time, right? Yeah. Um, and I, this is my personal opinion, but about three years ago, people couldn't differentiate between us and carbon capture. Mm -hmm. And people actually thought carbon capture or sequestering carbon was almost like a moral hazard. They just, it wasn't on the agenda. And in the past three years, it's just like all of the, the sectors that I work with in terms of their decarbonization pathways, they all see what you just were talking about as a bridge to reach their net zero goals. So if you look at a very difficult to decarbonize sector like aviation, mm -hmm. aviation knows that they're not going to have their breakthrough technologies in the next 15 years to reach their net zero targets in 20, you know, 2035. And so they're utilizing what you just mentioned as a means to get there, um, you know, so but but yeah, I think that's a very important uh, distinction that you just made. It's it's essential. I mean, what you're doing is fundamentally different than that. And that's one of the I suppose one of the concerning things about the project, because I'm I want you to get funding because you're still helping with the problem. But there's no way I don't see any way for you to access. You can't access the market that is this emerging carbon credit market that's continuing to grow and grow and grow. I'm spending a lot of my time thinking about how to um, create businesses and, and monetize um, solutions that fix that work on decarbonization or carbon removal. And this is something that's completely different, but I don't know if this is a good analogy. I mean, we've used the shield term a lot. They're kind of like the sword and you're like the shield. You can buy us more time to kind of figure this stuff out. Um, it seems to me that that is as valuable, if not more so than these other solutions, especially at this current time. So yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I don't know. You seem confident. I'm not really confident with the federal government coming in with, with the paycheck. I'm trying to find ways to get humans or industry to like support these types of solutions. You know what I mean? I, I agree with you. And, and whenever there is a, plan, a pathway to commercialize something, let private sector do more, we should take it. But there's no, there's no pathway to success where the government is not going to play a very large role in solving this problem sure. for us. Um, even if it's just raising the price of carbon, right? Right. Um, and so eventually I do believe we'll come to our senses. It's I'm not one of those people that believes this is an extinction event. The question is how much of the planet are we going to lose before that happens? Um, you know, we already, we're already about right here. Are we going to wait till it gets right here? Are we going to have to have, you know, more body bags? You know, it's like, you read these, I, it's not off the top of my head, but I, I read an article a couple of weeks ago about uh, coral sea, coral sea, coral, uh, coral reefs are the canary in the coal mine, right? Um, there, I read that like 90% of them are gone. And when you tell people that they say, well, yeah, but when are they gone, gone? And you're like, you can build a climate model at NASA to make bracketed estimates of, of when the coral reefs are gone but they're obviously 90% gone and they're going to be gone in our lifetimes. We should be acting as if our lives depend upon this to solve this problem. So I, we, we already see enough destruction in the world that we should be coming to our senses. Um, but um, building up this, building up the public consciousness and media like you guys and is a good way to help get people more informed so that they vote better. Right. Um, and so it's a, unless climate change is at the top of your voting agenda, mm -hmm. you know, 
you know, we don't have the will of the people. I don't see us solving it. But um, one last thing that I would say about our solution is that, you know, there could be a way and I, we haven't we haven't explored this yet, but there could be a way that a lot of these solutions could play a way as suppressing uh, climate change. Like, for example, there's a yeah. methane time bond underneath the Arctic. Right. And when that Arctic, you know, dis Arctic melts away, all that methane is going to be released into the atmosphere. So just in terms of like there's nature based solutions in a carbon carbon market, we could be something like that in the future. But like getting traded on these carbon markets, the formal markets is is a lot of work and, you know, it's very complicated. So we, we haven't really seriously looked at that endeavor, but it is kind of something that we've thought about in the past, which is how do we how do we quantify the impact that we're making on a localized right. basis and maybe commercialize that and trade it in a carbon market? That would be something that would be interesting to explore in the future. Yeah. I mean, there's got to be a better way than just the carbon market itself to really show the value. And then it's like the argument, I think of like the universal basic income argument. It's like, if you invest in your people, they'll become more productive. That makes yeah. sense to me, but not everyone agrees with that. But I'm, I'm still, it doesn't stop me from trying to think of ways to make it really, really viable. And a note on the reef. I mean, before I got involved in climate work, I lived in Australia for a year and I saw the Great Barrier Reef. And it's essentially when you see the bleach coral, that's like seeing the skeleton. The, the skin and bo the bones of a human so it's they're dead so they we need to bring them back it's not say it's not like save the reef it's like rejuvenate the reef i i, don't, I think but um as far as laying down the silica how do you determine the focal points that will have like the maximum impact to increase or create the most reflectivity yeah that's 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 a, a key question i mean right now we're doing climate modeling focused on the beaufort gyre which is kind of like a part of the Arctic uh, Ocean where it's kind of a nursery for young ice, where young ice can grow and how we can utilize those, 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 those currents to make a bigger impact in improving the reflectivity of the Arctic rather than carpeting everything, right? Yep. Um, and so that's, that's a big part, like that's a big part of our research, right? And we're, we're focused on the Beaufort guy right now. Uh, hopefully that will work and produce the results we want. But um, we, we won't be able to carpet the entire Arctic. So the North Star metric is we have to prove that our technology works on, on only looking at a particular part of the Arctic because it's not going to be feasible to carpet it on an annual basis. Um, if you wanted to deploy our solution and you deploy those hollow glass microspheres, it's something that most likely you're going to have to do on an annual or every two-year basis. So it has to be... with. You know, the engineering, there's a, there's a certain point where the engineering feat of getting it done will be just bigger than, you know, a bigger problem than actually uh, proving that it works, right? So it might be more of a thought study. If that area tends to be, if that if it proves that we have to carpet too much of the Arctic in order to get this done, that could be a, a failure, kind of a failure kind of to move forward. Is there a theoretical point where you've laid it down enough times that it creates a compounding positive feedback loop and actually increases the amount of ice that is there every single winter and it can kind of build on top of itself? Or would this be kind of a thing where we're constantly scraping the side of a mountain, bringing some silica to the north and continuing that forever? Yeah, well, I mean, not to, not to criticize our own solution, but I think this is one of the, the, the kind of the arguments against climate interventions which is that they represent a moral hazard. You know, if all we're doing is intervening in the climate um, and not fixing the core solution of stopping pollution, 
then it's going to lead to more climate interventions. So through the testing that we've done, we believe that we could dial back the clock and buy up to an additional 15 years for our planet to decarbonize. So if our technology was deployed, we believe that we could buy up to 15 years. So rather than having these ecosystems disappear now, we could kind of like shave off the, the peak climate risk, right? Um, so, in, you know, in terms of disasters, but it doesn't, it doesn't stop the fact that we're heading for a very bad place. And so if we don't, um, if we don't stop polluting, um, we're just going to be leading to more of these, these interventions, which isn't the right way to go. And that represents, that's kind of, that represents the moral hazard, which is a lot, uh, kind of the, one of the reasons why people think that we shouldn't be looking at this or deploying it. And I actually agree with this. I agree with that consensus opinion in terms of deployment, but we don't know a lot about the earth's planetary climate or, you know, mm-hmm. we don't know, we don't know, we're learning a lot. And even if one solution doesn't, doesn't work, it's going to lead to more tractable solutions in other areas. And so we need an intrepid group of scientists that are willing to do these types of experiments so that future generations of policymakers have all the tools available to them to make difficult decisions. Uh, I don't think we should be burying our head in the sand, in other words. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah, it's, 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 I think you hit the nail on the head is like, if we do it, when do we stop doing it? Mm-hmm. You know? And I would not be surprised at all if some oil and gas, if some politician or oil and gas company says, well, they, they're doing this climate intervention. We don't need, we don't need to, like science is going to save us. You know, we don't need to um, decarbonize a particular sector because we have these science solutions and that's completely inaccurate, but it, it might be used. I, I would predict that it could be used as a tool for people that are against making these these difficult choices in terms of our economy. Well, I always say this, you can make an argument about anything. And if you can, and it works in your advantage, people certainly will. But that's not always yeah. the people we want to listen to. Or, you know, I give them a chance. They can say what they want, but they have to defend their ideas um, against other people who might be a little bit further ahead in their, their intellect, I might say. So um, discourse is good, but as long as it's actual discourse, meaning there's someone kind of checking you on both ends. So what do you kind of do on, on your day-to-day as the executive director to kind of propagate this mission, get more people aware and, and, and fund the research? Oh, geez. Uh, I'd say 40% of my job is kind of like up at dawn, pounding the pavement, kind of a pride-swallowing experience, trying to raise capital so that we could fund these scientific partnerships. I mean, uh, I would guess that over 60, 70% of the dollars we raise actually go out. Like we're not trying to recreate uh, Cambridge or Harvard's laboratory. We want to hire the best scientists all over the world to study this solution. That's how we get into these assessment pathways. And so I'm always raising capital to fund that scientific research. And you can never be the hero of your own story, of the story, because the Arctic has to be the hero of the story, or maybe the scientists are. But that's taken up a lot of that takes up a lot of my time speaking with individuals like you to get the word out, working on public policy. Public policy is huge, huge part of our job. I mean, even after the science works, I think the public policy that's going to be needed to oversee the governance of deploying such a complicated technology is probably more difficult than actually validating the safety and effectiveness of the technology itself. Right. Um, but um we and then I would say I'm the project manager for a lot of the scientific research that we're doing right now. And the two biggest parts of that are safety testing in Norway and then the climate modeling, right? 
Yeah, fun fact. Two of my best friends actually went to school in Norway, in, Tr- in Trondheim. So I actually went and visited them. It's, an, it's a beautiful place. And uh, every other car is a Tesla. So they're onto something up there, you know? Yeah, no, we're, uh, we're currently doing our testing in their laboratories in Trondheim. I didn't hear it was love at first sight. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to them getting to uh, Svalbard, which is an island off the Arctic, which is um, assuming that we 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 proceed ahead as planned is where we'd be doing field testing next, which I'm really excited about. I hear Svalbard is a beautiful, beautiful island. Yeah. Norwegians are a very proud people. I have several Norwegian friends. They're very proud. If you if you find the right American, um, they're we're a very proud people as well. And then there's the polar opposite of people who don't like America who live there. But um, I've yeah, every Norwegian I've met has been really proud to be from Norway, and it's a beautiful place. So so I can't blame them. So you've described what you're working on as a kind of moonshot opportunity to save us from like some of the most Absolutely. devastating effects of climate yeah. change. How do you think you can increase the likelihood that this moonshot will actually like land you do world-class scientific research and you build the you really you have to build two networks you have to build a a phenomenal innovation network which is basically getting world-class scientists and their laboratories engaged in your solution so that's building up the body of peer-reviewed research so you got to get that you got to get the greatest minds on this scientists are are a tough you know sometimes they love their theories more than anything but like that's the first thing the second is you have to build a collaboration form, right? Um, it's going to take an immense amount of uh, coordination, cooperation, and collaboration to get this done. And it's not just going to be the scientific community. So that's connecting funders. That's revolutionizing capital markets for the 21st century. So that, like you mentioned, the private sector can do more whenever it can. Um, and it's really a movement. I mean, no one of us, it's we're not going to, no one's going to succeed if we go it alone. Right. So we have an organizational mission. We have to organizational mission is to restore ice to the Arctic. We have to have, you know, a budget and a a network. Uh, um, We have to have, you know, a five-year tech plan and we have to execute against that. And maybe one of the questions you haven't asked, but that keeps me up at night is when does it become too late? Somebody asked me that in a meeting uh, not, not too, too long ago. And, it was funny. It was the question is a very good one. She said, she said, uh, when is the Arctic dis- going to disappear in terms of an ice free Arctic summer? And she said, work back from that date and tell me if you can get your work done in time. That window's closing. It was a tough question because it, it is closing. She said, if it disappears between 2030 and 2040, and the IPCC says there's up to a 30% chance that the Arctic has an ice free Arctic summer at two degrees Celsius then when are we going to reach two degrees Celsius and maybe you won't have it done in time? And so I would say the reason we called this organization the Arctic Ice Project is we're not going to be around for very long. The Arctic Ice Project is like a task force. It's like, let's get this done. Let's save the Arctic. But in five, 10 years, if we haven't made massive progress and if the winds haven't shifted in terms of how humanity is going to deal and grapple with this problem, if we haven't gotten serious, then we need to move on to the next, the next thing. That is, we need to write off the Arctic to a certain extent and start focusing on Antarctica, start focusing on Greenland, start focusing on other areas of the, uh, of, of the cryosphere, where our technology might not be ap- applicable, right? You know, mm-hmm. ours, ours is built for the Arctic. Um, 
Does it work on land? That's a completely different, you know, that's, that's completely different. So, so, um, but um, yeah, I think time, time is finite and the clock is ticking for us. And um, that's probably what keeps me up at night the most uh, compared to other climate interventions. Like when I look at other climate interventions, they're not dedicated to one particular goal. Mm -hmm. And so even 30 years from now, you could still use stratospheric aerosols to cool down the planet. Um, so they're not faced with the same kind of urgency that we have. Well, might as well give it a shot. Hey, and Tom, yeah. I, I just want to thank you for using your leadership skills, like understanding of capital markets and just general organizational expertise to try and tackle this project. I appreciate, I appreciate everyone who's going at it with heart. So like that, thanks for taking some time to come on and share with me what you're doing. And th thanks for like, pioneering the ship, even if it's off of the edge of the flat earth. <laughs> I, I don't know, man. Thank you for getting the word out. You know, I mean, we're, uh, we're one of like many different additive solutions and like it can overwhelm people, the tech, uh, of all the climate tech that's out there. So I appreciate you giving us a voice. You're welcome, man. It's, it's been, it's been a pleasure to have you. I'm going to keep up with the research that you're doing. Um, can't can't say how grateful I am enough for everyone who's involved in this stuff. Um, do you have any final pieces of advice for young folks who are passionate about building a better world? That's a good question. I mean, it's kind of not taking my own advice, but I think I think the climate space is a great place to start a career. We need we need great people, um, and so if you have an interest in it, the best time to start is right away, right. And my second piece of advice would be don't get too used to the job that you're doing because we're moving like in dog years right now. Um, you know, I can't even recognize the sector from three years ago. Um, so it's going to be, you know, we're going to have massive scale and growth. And so I think it's going to be a very good place to be. I could not agree more. You're, you're absolutely right. Things are moving fast and that's kind of the stuff you want to be involved in, whether you want to get into like something that's new and cool or profitable or really makes a huge impact. It's, it's everything. So join the yeah. gang, Tom. Thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it too. You have a great day. Thanks. You too, man. You're welcome. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrealty.org today.